This sermon is part of our annual Mother's Day uh, series that we've been doing for a few years now on founding mothers of Unitarian Universalism. To share a few of those um, with you so that the, I worry that the, if we don't kind of review this, it just kind of becomes one and done. And I want you to kind of have a sense of these over the years. Quite a few years ago, we began with Margaret Fuller, who, along with Emerson and Thoreau, was one of the our three most important transcendentalist forebears. Her 1845 pamphlet, Women in the 19th Century, was a significant contribution to the women's equality movement. Next, we move to the three Peabody sisters, especially Elizabeth Peabody, an author herself who also published many of the Transcendentalists under her own imprint. She also became the celebrated founder of kindergartens in America. She's the one that brought that idea over here from Germany. Then we explored the life of Julia Ward Howe, who uh, Jen shared with us earlier, about whom it is said she had six children, learned six languages, and published six books. She was most famous for writing the lyrics to the Battle Hymn of the Republic, and as Jen shared earlier, she helped found Mother's Day itself through her famous Mother's Day Proclamation for Peace. We've also focused on Mary Moody Emerson, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson's aunt, whom he called his earliest and best teacher, as well as Louisa May Alcott, best known as the author of Little Women. At the time of her death in 1888, she was the country's most popular author and had earned more from writing than any male author of her time. And Olympia Brown, a universalist who in 1863 became the first woman to be ordained with full denominational recognition. Last year, you may recall, our focus was Lydia Mariah Child, a pathbreaking activist for social justice in the 19th century. In future years, I look forward to telling you about other founding mothers of UU. Judith Sargent Murray, an early American advocate for women's rights, who is married to John Murray, the founder of the universalist half of our movement. Sophia Lyon Foz, who revolutionized 20th century UU religious education. Sarah Ripley, an American educator and noted scholar at a time when women were rarely admitted to universities. And Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, one of the first African-American women to be published in the United States. Now, my intent with this quick summary is not to overwhelm you with names and dates. I know all that's a lot. We did go you know, into depth in each of these in turn. Really, my hope is that your takeaway will be that as Unitarian Universalists today, we are lifted up on the shoulders of giants, many of whom were pathbreaking women. And retelling these stories of our UU ancestors could allow their lives to continue to inspire us to live into our UU values today. In that spirit for our eighth installment in this Founding Mothers of UU series, we're gonna explore the life and legacy of Cecilia Payne Gapachkin. She was a woman of many firsts. She was the first, first woman to receive a PhD in astronomy from Radcliffe College. That was the sibling institution to Harvard College when it was all male. She was the first woman promoted to full professor at Harvard, the first woman to head a department at Harvard, and in what has been called the most brilliant PhD thesis ever written in astronomy, she was the first to describe what stars are made of. 
here's a photo of that brilliant thesis. You can still read it today. It's very nerdy. Uh, Stellar Atmospheres, a contribution to the observational study of high temperatures in the reversing layers of stars. And you can tell that she was the first to sort of start that astronomy department. Do you see the number one up there in the in that series? So the first in that um, series that continues today. So let me... Um, you know, I really didn't know much about her prior to reading this biography of her that was published last year by Harvard University Press. And I happened to think, oh, I wonder if she's a Unitarian. It turns out she was. So let me tell you a little bit of the origin story behind this recent biography. How did this come to be? The author, as you can see at the top, Donovan Moore, he happened to be flipping through some handouts. He had a friend that was taking this course, being taught at Princeton on the universe, and he just kind of picked up some of the course materials and was flipping through it. And he noticed this slide that had three unnamed photographs. And he said, oh, well, I recognize Aristotle. I recognize Isaac Newton. But who is this third person that is literally on the same page as these great men of science? And so he dug a little more deeply into the presentation. He discovered her name, but still didn't know much about her. Upon further investigation, it turns out that picture alone has quite the story behind it. Some of you will know the artist Patricia Watwood uh, continues to do um, you know, portraiture. Uh, so this is an oil portrait by her painted in 2002, more than two decades after Cecilia Payne Gabachkin's death. Uh, this artist based it on 25 photographs of Cecilia with an overall visual illusion, and some of you will recognize this, Vermeer's uh, 1668 painting, The Astronomer, that hangs in the Louvre. This portrait of Cecilia was commissioned by Dudley Hirschbach, a Nobel Prize winning chemistry professor at Harvard. He was contributing to this effort to have more portraits of women hanging on Harvard University's walls, which have historically included only men. When Cecilia's portrait was hung, the dean of Har the Harvard Faculty of Arts and Sciences quoted these words from a Harvard undergraduate who had just learned about Cecilia. Every high school student knows that Newton discovered gravity and that Darwin discovered evolution, even that Einstein discovered relativity. But when it comes to the composition of our universe, the textbooks simply say the most prevalent element in the universe is hydrogen. And few ever wonder how we know that. But at this point, we're getting ahead of the story. So come with me back to the beginning and let me more properly share with you some about how um, Cecilia Payne Gapachkin's re quite remarkable life came to be. She was born in 1900 in Wendover, England, the oldest of three children, and her earliest high school memories were pretty idyllic. She says, everyone knew everyone else in my neighborhood. Neighbors were a bicycle ride away. There were no highways in 1900, no cars. There were just shining stars in a black sky. As some of you have heard me say before, you know, if you're in a place with no light pollution, you should be seeing 27,000 stars, 27,000 in the night star. That's what you see when you're, so that's what she used to see as a child. And she says, I grew up in a happy home. And although her, her siblings also went on to live successful lives, it was clear from a very young age that Cecilia was different. And her parents said that the, if you had to boil it down, her central characteristic that was different from her siblings to one word, it was curiosity. Cecilia was extremely, relentlessly curious about everything. 
Now, the great tragedy of her childhood was her father's death of an unidentified medical emergency when Cecilia was only four years old. This meant not only the loss of a beloved parent, but also a major financial impact on the family due to the loss of her father's um, income as a lawyer. stop the slides for a second. So despite these hardships, Cecilia persisted in doing well in school. I'll give you just one example of her early achievements. Her elementary school had this, I don't know if any of you ever had this, there was an annual general knowledge exam. So every student in that entire elementary school, elementary school in every grade level took the same test. In her first year, in the youngest grade, she got the second highest grade in the entire school. Now, in the short run, this level of success led to both resentment and harassment from her peers. But in the long run, her studiousness earned her a full scholarship to Cambridge University. And given her financial situation of her family, that's the only way she would ever have been able to go to Cambridge. I'll give you just one more example from her early years that has parallels to the way that Cecilia would often find herself swimming against the current throughout her life. As a scholarship student at a private high school, her classmates were almost all from aristocratic families. They were being groomed to take their place in that aristocratic world. Several would become successful actresses. Others would go on to finishing school, you know, and there the curriculum focused on. So this is like what, what girls were expected to do. They were expected to learn how to dance, how to enunciate clearly, how to comport oneself at banquets. And this was the most important thing how to enter and retire from a room with a degree of elegance and assurance. So that's what her peers were doing. What Cecilia was doing was spending her free time teaching herself calculus and coordinate geography. Now, in addition to the class struggles that she faced, Cecilia also faced a tremendous amount of sexism throughout her life. At the same time, it's also true that if she had begun her career any earlier than when she did, what she did eventually accomplish may have been not merely difficult, but perhaps even impossible due to the even greater degree of sexism that existed in England prior to World War I. Let me share a few slides with you again to say a little more. So when Cecilia arrived at Cambridge University in the fall of 1919, it was less than a year after the end of the First World War. During the war, it had become suddenly much more commonplace for women and men to work together, for women to have short haircuts, to wear, you know, <gasps> knee-length shorts, uh, etc. Uh, no gasp. Uh, these subversions of traditional gender norms really aided Cecilia's ambitions. Unfortunately, many Victorian gender norms still continued. For instance, many people at the time still believed it was a woman's role to be subservient, a subservient helper to men, that the hard sciences were, quote, no place for the so-called fairer sex. Now, there is a whole lot more to Cecilia's story than we're going to have time to get into in 20 minutes or so. But let me move now to a major turning point in her early days at Cambridge. In early November 1919, this is the fall semester of her freshman year in college, the New York Times published a headline about the findings of Sir Arthur Eddington, one of the professors at Cambridge. Lights all askew in the heavens, men of science more or less agog <laughs> over the re results of eclipse. So this eclipse, this solar eclipse, had made it possible to test. They had to wait till this precise timing in this one place and one time. There's like a five-minute window 
when Einstein's theory of relativity could be tested. And it was proven, you know, this amazing data came through. Stars are not where they seemed or were calculated to be, but no one need worry. So Dr. Eddington had provided evidence that Albert Einstein's 1915 paper on the general theory of relativity was correct. And in early December, Eddington came back to Cambridge after being in Africa for this, you know, with a telescope for this one place in time for the eclipse. And she had the opportunity to hear him lecture in person about his findings. She said, after hearing that lecture, I didn't sleep for three nights. My world had been so shaken. It felt like a nervous breakdown. The seriousness with which she took Edward Eddington's findings is an indication of the passion and the commitment that she would bring in her own search for scientific discoveries. And although Cecilia went above and beyond in every aspect of her academic pursuits at Cambridge, it remained the case that in the early 1920s, a woman could at most, and this was even this was pretty revolutionary at the time, could be awarded, quote, the title of a degree, not the degree. You didn't earn the degree, you earned the title of a degree, even though women were in the same classes, did the same work, you know, uh, as men. Cambridge would not award degrees to women until 1947, more than two decades after Cecilia left the university. This level of systemic misogyny made it clear that her opportunities for a career in science would be severely limited if she remained in England. Fortunately, she had impressed Eddington and other Cambridge professors so much that they were able to help her get a job at the Harvard University Observatory. So in the fall of 1923, the 23-year-old Cecilia Payne went by herself. She left her family, she left her native land, boarded a ship, and sailed to America, exchanging Cambridge University for Cambridge, Massachusetts. When she arrived at the Harvard Observatory, she found that there were more than a million photographs um, from telescopes that had been carefully cataloged, but no one had taken the time to interpret them, and she had the training to do that. So after logging an immense number of hours crunching all that data, her calculations estimated quite a surprising conclusion. If her math was correct, then hydrogen was a million times more abundant than the reigning scientific theories held to be the case. Looking back, it can really be difficult to appreciate what a universe-shaking universe claim she was making. As one historian of science has written, at the time, the possibility that hydrogen was the primary constituent of the universe was not a welcome thought at all. Even though hydrogen was the most persistent line feature in the spectra of stars, sometimes even the most prominent, all the prominent astronomers of the day felt strongly hydrogen could not be the major constituent of stars, but that was what the data was showing. Keep in mind that at the time that Cecilia made this discovery, she was a 25-year-old woman trying to operate in a world of fairly extreme misogyny. I mean, it wasn't The Handmaid's Tale, but it was really bad. Indeed, her supervisor and many other established male scientists made it clear that if she didn't make a caveat about her claims and her calculations, her findings would be dismissed out of hand and her dissertation would be rejected. Given these circumstances, she published her results. She showed all her work and all her calculations, but she included this four-word caveat that the results were, quote, almost certainly not real. 
The good news is she was awarded Harvard's first doctoral degree in astronomy, but her daughter reports that she regretted this concession the rest of her life. And scientists now agree that her calculations were correct all along. She was the first to determine what stars are made of, one of the most fundamental discoveries in the science of astronomy. A few years later, when a male scientist, Henry Norris Russell, Russell, published similar conclusions, he included, and that's the one that actually convinced the scientific community, he, uh, he included an acknowledgement of Cecilia's early results in passing, but he was, let's say, somewhat less than willing to indicate to his readership that he had made a significant reversal. And he never admitted that he was one of the ones who convinced Cecilia to characterize her results as almost certainly unreal in the first place. Honestly, it's some pretty classic gaslighting. And for too many years, even though she was a popular teacher of graduate classes at Harvard, she was paid a paltry sum as a quote, technical assistant. She felt like, she said she was made to feel like she was just a piece of equipment because women were not allowed to hold official titles of either instructor or professor, even though that's what she was doing. By the early 1940s, she had written a second book. She had published 78 papers on stellar spectra and, um, 50, and another 58 papers on stellar um, photometry. Nevertheless, for many years to come, she would receive what was called a regrettable salary and have to endure the insult of her name never being listed in the Harvard course catalog. A male colleague at Yale described her as the most brilliant and at the same time most discriminated against person at the Harvard College Observatory. In 1956, more than three decades after her arrival at Harvard, when her original supervisor finally retired, and he supported her in many ways, but he also kept her down in many ways. So when that original supervisor retired, his replacement finally began to remedy her unjust treatment. He not only raised and then doubled her salary, he also granted her the official title she had long been denied. But here's the even deeper truth. Pretty good that he did all that, but she should have been the one to get her supervisor's job when he retired, and she would have if she had been male. But what did happen remained momentous. As reported on the front page of the New York Times, Harvard University announced today the appointment of Dr. Cecilia Payne Kapashkin as professor of astronomy. She is the first woman to attain full professorship at Harvard through regular faculty of promotions. Within months, she had also become the first woman at Harvard to chair a department. In her words, I have reached a height that I should never in my wildest dreams have predicted 50 years ago. The thing is, she should have reached that height without having to do everything, you know, backward wearing high heels and work twice as hard to get half as far. And although it would have been enough as her career had peaked with that initial landmark discovery of what stars are made of, she went on to publish multiple books. I, I've listed them here on the slide, as well as look at this on the bottom. She published more than 284 academic articles. Truly, truly a remarkable person and a remarkable life. And in 1976, three years before her death from lung cancer in 1979, at the age of 79, she became the first woman to receive the Lifetime Achievement Award from the American Astronomical Society. It's given to one person annually on the basis of a lifetime of eminence in astronomical research. 
Ironically, this award continues to be known as the Henry Norris Russell Prize, the namesake of its first recipient. Russell, you may recall, was the person, one of the people responsible for gaslighting Cecilia about the truth of her discovery about stars and convincing her that what the data and her calculations showed was incorrect. Nevertheless, she persisted, and her contributions are increasingly recognized today. I also mentioned that she's one of our Unitarian forebears. Cecilia and her husband, among other things, were members of First Parish Lexington. That's a Unitarian congregation still in existence today near Harvard. And she regularly volunteered as a religious education teacher, so quite appropriate on this Teacher Recognition Sunday. Uh, she taught 9 to 12-year-old RE for many, many years. Her daughter tells a story uh, one time in particular about her mother donning heavy wooden slap, woolen slacks and walking more than three miles to teach an RE class one bitterly cold winter morning in Boston when the um, family car would not start. The story reveals a great deal about her character. In her autobiography, she described her attitude in the face of all these slow promotions and low pay. She said, I simply went on plotting, rewarded by the beauty of the scenery toward an unexpected goal. Along those lines, I'll leave the final words to Dr. Cecilia Payne Gaposchkin herself. She would offer the following advice to aspiring scientists. She would say, don't undertake a scientific career in a quest for fame or money. There are easier and better ways to reach them if those are your goals. Undertake a scientific career if nothing else will satisfy you, for nothing else is what you may receive. But your reward will be the widening of the horizon as you climb. And if you achieve that, this widening of what humans know, that reward, you will ask no other beyond it. And let's, in that spirit, in light of all and kind of honoring all that she and continues to be done to expand um, women's rights and, and um, rights irrespective of gender, let's sing together an anthem of the women's rights movement written less than a decade after Cecilia was born, Red and Roses. <laughs>